0: All right, before we jump into this episode, I want to update you on the many resources I've been working on. One is the ICU Revolutionist support groups. There's a Facebook group called Walking Home from the ICU, and there's also a monthly Zoom meeting for ICU revolutionists. If you are trying to bring these changes to your ICU, join our monthly meetings. We're meeting together to discuss our challenges, solutions, and successes to support each other in our many different journeys to becoming awake and walking ICUs. Next, if you haven't seen my free ebook debunking six myths about medically induced comas, you can find out my website, datenicuconsulting.com. There you can also sign up for the monthly newsletters for all of my updates, as well as various topics of interest. Now, if your team is having a hard time getting support and buying from leadership to become an awaken walking ICU, I am providing remote or in-person financial presentations free of charge to your hospital system. I share the financial loss of sedation and immobility, as well as the financial benefits and huge return on investment of awake and walking ICUs. Get me an audience with your executive leadership team for an hour. And by the end of it, they should be asking you what you need to succeed. I'm also excited to invite you to the upcoming Vapotherm webinar that I'm participating in. It is a roundtable discussion about awake and walking ICUs with a famous creator of the ABCDF bundle, CAM screening tool, and the author of the book, Every Deep down breath, Dr. Wes Ely. There will also be present one of the founders of IC Liberation, physical therapist, Heidi Ingle, accompanied by respiratory therapy manager of Peace Health Hospital, Mario Sosoya, who was part of the training Heidi and I did with her team last fall, all moderated by the respiratory therapist expert Matthew Povlichko from Vapotherm. There are free RT and RN CEU credits, so sign up at the link provided in these show notes. Now for this episode. I have been asked numerous times, okay, so what about burn ICU? This is a huge and valuable inquiry as we can all imagine. Burn ICU has high risks of delirium and ICU-acquired weakness as well as difficult challenges to becoming awake and walking ICUs. I'm excited to have an expert physical therapist Audrey O'Neill share with us her exciting work. Audrey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us and all
1: your great work and expertise. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, um, thank you for having me. Um, I am a physical therapist. working in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, I work for um, Eskenazi Health um, Hospital in um, a burn unit. I'm specifically dedicated to the burn unit there. So it's a burn ICU. Um, And what it looks like is it's a 15 bed, um, we call it acuity adaptable. So we can have patients who are intubated, sedated on CRRT, um, kind of at the most critical stages on our unit, as well as patients who are a little bit less um, acuity or even patients who we'd consider up at Lib um, that we're taking, we're treating more as outpatients taking to our therapy gym. So we just have a really big variety of patients that we can have on our unit. Um, so that's my um, primary focus. And I also do like some mood care and some outpatient therapy as well, just depending on our census. But I'm solely with burn patients.
0: And this is really exciting for me because I have no experience with burn. I don't know that I have the constitution for it. So I have a lot of respect and admiration for our mm-hmm. burn ICUs out there. Um, but as I've been in conferences, people have asked, well, what about burn? And I recognize that you have a really unique Um, demographic, such a variety of patients um, and some really hard barriers to some of the um, methods that I would advocate for. Right. So when I found your study about early mobility in the burn ICU, I got excited. Tell us about your recent publication.
1: Yeah. So basically um, as a, uh, I started in burn seven years ago and we had just started as a student, we had just rolled out Um, this early mobilization protocol um, that we had made for our, our burn ICU. And as I was training and learning and I just had questions on, okay, how are we really using this? How effective are we being? It felt like we were running into the same barriers over and over when we were trying to mobilize patients. So I really just wanted to know like how we were using this and what our barriers were. So I started just retrospectively looking back at patient charts to see Um, kind of our patients who were vented, were we, um, when were we getting them out of bed? How are we getting them out of bed? And fortunately we have very thorough documentation, which made it easier to look at kind of when we were documenting our barriers. So, um, and it just turned into this multi-year thing where I had all this data and, um, just was able to, um, turn it into a publication. Like you said, there's not a lot of resources and information out there.
0: Absolutely, and I recognize that there are some barriers which we'll get into, but also these are patients that can have prolonged ICU stay that are at high risk of delirium and ICU-acquired weakness and a lot of these long-term repercussions. And so it the logic would tell you that early mobility would still be a top priority. What did you find in all these chart
1: reviews? So um, with the, and I will I will go back and say that, burn care in general is transitioning to where our typical typically um, burn therapists are in the ICU, but we're doing a lot of passive interventions. We're doing a lot of range of motion, stretching, positioning, and those are treatments for patients and mobility has kind of been off the table because um, patients with large dressings and wounds are intimidating. And it's, Mm -hmm. and like you said, the coordination is just um, very challenging. So, and unfortunately, our unit is has always been supportive and very progressive when it comes to early mobilization, so we had been doing it, but we didn't have an established protocol in place so um that was the re- rationale for the development of this protocol and um basically, what I found was that um and I apologize I don't have it I should have it right in front of me but um so our biggest barrier to mobilizing patients were the medical complications so the initial week to two weeks, our patients are undergoing um, fluid resuscitation, which again is something unique to burns where just fluid is being moved um, kind of out of the interstitial spaces, and it can affect a lot of cardiac, lung, um, and kidney volume, so we're having to replace that, and they can be in this really like delicate, delicate state, so um, patients are undergoing that. Um, they're undergoing multiple surgical debridements initially. So often they're getting going in and out of the OR. Um, so just that balance in that initial week to two week periods for some of our larger more sedated burns that are that would be on a ventilator um, can be challenging. So often we're um trying to combat that. But then also for our unit specifically, I found that for more aligned was limiting our mobility. Um, with like 21% of the time, which honestly, the benefit of this research was that it allowed me to take that data back to our physician and say, "Hey, this is limiting us." So we've been able to change our practices. So,
0: and these are previous years, right? Because more current research shows that it is safe and feasible to mobilize patients with femoral lines, but before that research, that was a big concern in our community, right?
1: And, and again, it is, um, yes, it's, it's a big concern in the ICU community, but for burns specifically, um, generally they're more at risk for clot formation and um, the security of the lines that are often sutured in place sometimes aren't the best. So there's just more challenges there. And there's not a lot of published data in the burn population, which is where our burn physicians, again, become a little bit more hesitant to that. Yeah. So, and then also, so I guess like looking, so those were our larger barriers that I was able to put um, like percentages behind as far as like the medical complications and hemodynamic instability along with um, the our line limitations. But in general, I found that sedation is a huge barrier for us compared to some of the other um, studies because I guess what I looked at was mobility progression, like stages of mobility, so how we were mobilizing the patients using the protocol. How many patients were we getting to the edge of the bed? How many patients were we standing? How many patients were we actively getting to a chair? How many were we walking? And you read these studies, and it's all these patients that are like walking on vents all over the units and other ICUs, and we had like six <laughs> within <laughs> five years, that we we were able to get into the hallway, which seems like huge achievements for us when it happened, but it's not to a regular frequency that seems to be out there in other populations. So, um, just really looking at why, and um, there's other studies um, that I referenced in my article that showed like even intermittent use of intermittent use of sedation just really varies just how awake patients are and their ability to walk on a vent and where our patients are undergoing dressing changes so they have to get pain medicine and sedating meds and things for those procedures so some of those barriers also influence us as well
0: absolutely yeah that is a huge barrier yeah so how how did for example in those six cases what made those six so different what what helped you- the team at those times navigate sedation or overcome those barriers?
1: Um, So I did in the, in the paper, I did look at those specific patients that we walked and looked at kind of what the differences demographically um, injury wise, like what age of patients kind of what the differences were. And um, a few of the patients were just what we consider inhalation injury. So they didn't have any, um, burns to their skin so it was just mostly they were on the and when a patient has an inhalation injury um, it involves the um, epithelial tissue lining their respiratory tract which can like fluff and cause extra mucus and inflammation so they have to be on the vent for seventy two plus hours just to manage that um, but they generally can be more awake so we can um, and we can secure their eT tube a little better because they're not they don't have facial burns Um, so we can keep them more awake and then they can get out of bed and walk a little bit more. Um, With, uh, sorry, (laughs) with our, um, with two of our patients, one was, I believe, in the 30% and one was 44% burn, which is a pretty, those are pretty large surface areas and um, uh, age, they could be younger, or just um, timing, uh, the like coordination of staff, it just, we never know. I think we sometimes we get patients sitting on the edge of the bed and the timing works great and we can stand and we can walk. Um, and other times, um, just depending on their dressing change schedule, we might get them into bed. They might be more sedated and um it's unsafe to progress. So I'm not sure necessarily I didn't look into or it's just counting just to determine on those larger burns, like why they were okay, and others weren't necessarily didn't progress as far.
0: And um, how do you navigate pain management, right? In the ADF bundle, a assess manage pain is the number one, especially with burns. This is especially why I don't know if I could handle burns that well, because yeah. it's with myself or my kids and we get burned. It's it's terrible. Um, and so mobility in the setting of so much pain, it has to be really difficult. How do you navigate pain management so that you, they're not over sedated and can't participate, but they're adequately managed.
1: So, um, and I think this can be a huge barrier or limited understanding between like sometimes with our, if our nurses are titrating meds and it's something that we're working on our unit is, um, Sometimes if the patient is more what seems to be more agitated on the vent, kind of assessing, like, do they need more sedation or are they in pain and do they need more pain management? And sometimes it's easier just to titrate up the sedation meds um, versus giving them their their regularly scheduled pain medicine. So Absolutely. um, Great point. So for us, we just try to coordinate around the dressing changes. So sometimes if we know a patient's going to be getting a lot more medication for a dressing change, We'll come in first thing in the morning, coordinate with the nurses before that so that way we can be more successful and they can participate more in their mobility session um, prior to that dressing change and do more active therapy there. And then depending, we'll do more dependent, we'll lift them to a cardiac chair or do something that maybe they wouldn't need to participate as much in but still gets them upright in the afternoon after their change.
0: That is so great. I love the way your team is working together that you're aware of. You work with wound care and the nurses and RT, like everyone is aware of what's going on with that patient that day. And everyone sounds like respects your role and the importance of early mobility.
1: We've had, um, we have primarily two PTs and two OTs for that 15 bed unit. So um, we have a lot of staff to go around and um, we are dedicated to the unit and we only see the burn patients. And just like our nurses are dedicated and only typically have burn patients. So we know each other, we work a lot together and it just, and they, it helps having that like, just like team cohesiveness.
0: Absolutely. I know that's sounding, I'm speculating that you have some long timers, like you have people there that aren't just there for a few months or aren't just newly there. Like the, that is, like you say, their expertise—that's their specialty. They've been for mm-hmm. there for a while. They know each other. That's going to be an upcoming episode on team dynamics and how much that impacts the overall system. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's really hard to coordinate with people that you don't know, and that you don't yes. have relationships with, and things like that. Because it—I mean, these schedules these, with these patients, these procedures—it's all very um, tenuous and variable. So you have mm-hmm. to work so closely with each other. Um, which is again, hard to do. I, I've been a travel nurse and it's hard for me to both Sarah, physical therapy when I don't know who they are. You know, I, I don't, yeah. I don't know how to find them. I don't, there's just, your brain is working on so many other things at that time. I'm trying to find where the towels are. I can't coordinate when I'm going to mobilize my patient. Right. I, I just, You have to have some stability to be able to work on those other dynamics. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. Mm-hmm. Um, why, how does your team feel about the 8F bundle? Kind of what is the culture and the focus in general?
1: I would say that um, I think we are aware of um. The bundle, but I don't know that it's like necessarily ingrained in practice. I think it's something that we we know and as like general ICU um, settings, but unfortunately, I, I think it's probably something that we could improve upon <laughs> to um, kind of use more on a like protocol basis. Um, I mean, I think we we definitely do all of these things, um, like you said, assessing for pain. Um, spontaneous, awake, and um, breathing trials, we're definitely um, coordinating those more so. What happens generally is our um, our ICU team, um, surgical ICU team still runs our patients' ventilators and their settings So and not our burn team. So that coordination um, sometimes is um, like they're not directly on our unit all the time, so they're rounding at a certain time, so it's not necessarily scheduled. But, um, but I won't say that when the patient is on spontaneous, like depending on how they're doing, we'll still progress them unless they're planning to go towards extubation soon. And then we won't necessarily try to wear them out before, (laughs) before that we'll kind of see what the team says and kind of see what happens. Um, definitely we're trying to manage multiple things when we're choosing sedation, um for our patients and some um some of it is um just kind of what's working best for the patient but then also um our physicians have a lot against like propofol because it can just the the way it um kind of affects calorie counts and nutrition for our patients. So that is sometimes a barrier that they're um kind of coordinating with our pharmacy and our um critical care staff.
0: Right. Uh, As far
1: as as far as delirium goes, um i think for all of our patients therapy plays a huge role in that and um, we're trying to keep lights on and trying to keep patients like upright during the day at least in chair mode and um even on our um, non-intubated patients i think if patients are at high risk of mobility we're in there all the time getting them up all the time um and then as far as family goes we're I know we talked about early mobility this whole time, but um kind of skipping over that, but trying to engage family as we can when we are mobilizing. So um, like I have a video that I can show later, but family recorded the video and um, it's this large burn, 20% year old or 20 year old kid. Um, and he stands and he recognizes his girlfriend and he wants to give her a hug. So mm-hmm. it's, um, I think sometimes family wants to be in the room. Sometimes they don't. So if they, if they want to be in the room, we can definitely encourage that and coordinate that. But if not, then sometimes we coordinate around.
0: That is difficult. I know because I've never worked for an ICU. Um, for any patient on a ventilator, it's a startling sight for their families. It's difficult. Mm-hmm. But then burns on top of it, that's mm-hmm. a different level of agony for the patient and the family. Mm-hmm. But how do you see families benefiting or helping with the early mobility process?
1: I think they can encourage patients to be awake more so like if they're um, like I can sit in front of a patient and talk to them but they're they can kind of be like who the heck are you and why are you in my face um, but if you have a family member who's talking to them often they'll recognize their voice and um, like we're we're trying to encourage patients to use their injured extremities so they'll they want to reach for family members or um, kind of even try to hold their hands or something so um, I think for families, it can be encouraging to see their loved ones doing real life activities that are not just laying in a bed, especially when they almost like can't even recognize their loved one because of their injury and the dressings that are in place. Mm. Um, and then, but like you said, it can be scary and it can be intimidating for um, for family members to see just because um, they're even scared to touch their their loved one at that point, let alone see them sitting up standing or or doing anything active
0: right and just out of my own curiosity what do you see as far as family involvement in pain management does it impact the level of opioids given I don't know do you know
1: um sometimes sometimes we I I try to avoid the, the therapy sessions and the interventions that would involve a lot of pretty heavy like grimacing and um, like signs of pain with families mm-hmm. there but um, sometimes family can request more they feel like their loved one is uncomfortable for any reason they might ask the nurse about pain um, meds and our nurses are always checking and things are scheduled and we they're trying to stay on top of it as much as we can um, but we have conversations with family early on about of what we're doing, why we're doing it, because they'll come in and they'll see them positioned in all these crazy positions and with these splints on and hip abduction wedges holding their shoulders up or something strange, and um, just explaining kind of that we want them to be able to use their burned extremities once they're healed and once they're out of here and why the positioning and the, the stretching that we're doing, how that plays a role in the long term. And they're generally supportive of that because they talk about kind of what their loved one's hobbies were, or what, what they would want to get back to. And so if we're doing something that's painful, generally, the family might ch- chime in and encourage their loved one saying, this is going to help you do this task later and kind of remind them of that too.
0: I love that. No, it, that's that is has to be a, such a difficult journey to be stuck in bed in so much pain. Unable to move, I, I, it just sounds horrific. But your role in moving that forward, getting them out of there, and getting them back to their lives is pivotal. And I love that you're you are part of the ICU team. You're not just visiting the ICU; you are in the ICU, and every you're helping keep everyone focused on that overall goal and integrating the family even more um, into that journey. That is so key. And how do you feel like you work with nursing? To manage sedation practices when it comes to early mobility.
1: Uh, like I said, co- coordinating with um, kind of around when the nurses are going to need the sedating medicine to like do our therapy, because um, our nurses are with the patients every day for weeks, months, and so they they see what we do and they can see the benefit and um, and they support our efforts. So um they and they know i guess we're working together like we respect them and what they're trying to do with their dressing changes and we'll often um if we know they need to do something we'll help like we won't just say like okay this patient's had um we're getting ready to mobilize them but they've had a bowel movement in the bed um you go in there and take care of that and we'll be back to get them up later no we we coordinate and we like help with those things so they're tasked too. So they, see that and appreciate it Um, but often we have some nurses who are in there participating in our mobilization um, sessions and are um, they're doing linen changes while we're standing or they're doing so they they'll coordinate around that too but um, I think sometimes nurses are if we have titrated sedation they're nervous to turn it down Um, if especially, especially if the patient has been restless but I think we've seen enough that sometimes patients are restless because they want to move and they yes. maybe have back pain and they don't want to be stuck in the bed and um so sometimes the nurses are like yes they're itching to move please go in there they'll help titrate down um their sedation and we've had patients who are almost like completely sleeping in the bed can't get them to do anything sedation is titrated down and in five minutes they're um, like dancing to Dr. Dre or something like that whenever we're mobilizing them. So it can make a huge difference in our nurses see that.
0: I love that. So there's a saying in the awake and walking ICU from a Dr. Bill Beninati. He says, walk when wild, walk when sluggish. And that's what you just demonstrated, that when they're agitated, you mobilize them. When they're, you said sleeping or they have hypoactive delirium, they're kind of sluggish. It is amazing what happens during mobility. Patients that can barely open their eyes, you get them dangling and suddenly they're looking you in the eyes They're following commands um, mm-hmm. or dancing. Uh, it, it is amazing what that stimulation can do and how much it helps with their delirium. And mm-hmm. what are some of the risk factors that are especially high in your unit for the development of delirium?
1: I, are we, we are very high um, as far as like a, the, our unit in general is high risk for delirium. And again, even in our intubated patients and in our non-intubated patients, um, and a lot of times when our patients are extubated and are waking up more after their surgeries, they they almost present somewhat like traumatic brain injuries just from um, the delirium and kind of some of the cognitive deficits that they see initially. Um, and, I, and I would say just the, the dressing changes, the need for constant pain medication, multiple surgeries that they're undergoing um, periods of immobilization from not only are they um, stuck in bed longer, even if we're trying our best to mobilize them as much as we can, but we're putting on splints and positioning. So they're not really even able to, um, at times, like shift around and embed the way a normal, a, a general ICU patient would be.
0: No, Yeah, your risk factors are tremendous. Um, do you know what your delirium rates are?
1: I do not actually, but we are, we're actually doing an internal um, study on that kind of right now too, because our hospital has a, um, a post ICU clinic um, that Great. kind of manages um, our general ICU and we can send our burn patients to them as well, but uh, just outcomes, anyone admitted to the ICU can follow up in this clinic and they look for Kind of those long term effects of the PIC syndrome and including delirium. And so we're starting a, where we're looking at delirium at discharge and kind of how that's progressing and outpatient to initiate um, referrals for speech therapy to work on cognitive tools. And
0: I love it. I love it. And the fact that there's coordination between the post ICU clinic and the ICU. That they're looking into what's going on in the ICU and helping give you perspective on what happens after the ICU. So, is delirium a frequent topic during rounds or between colleagues? Is that something that people are really assessing for, understanding, aware of, concerned about? Yes, definitely.
1: Um, we um, on our burn unit, burn unit we have multidisciplinary rounds three times a week, um, twice at patient bedside and the um, in the middle of the week, on Wednesdays, we sit down in a conference room and go through all aspects of care. So, um, that's something that we're um, that the team is aware of and assessing daily. And we're bringing up because sometimes patients can we they maybe aren't presenting as that they have cognitive deficits just during general assessments. But when we're seeing them in therapy and working longer with them, we're seeing it more so. Um, so we'll bring up things that we're seeing in our therapy sessions as well during
0: those conferences. I love that. So as a nurse practitioner, at the end of every shift, um, physical therapy comes in, or even just in the middle of the shift, comes and gives me an update on everyone. And though I've done my own assessments, I've done all the rounds with everyone. Um, nurses have been talking to me. Physical therapy always comes and brings this unique part of the overall picture assessment, but their ability to identify delirium has astounded me. I'm like, well, I just saw that patient like two hours ago. I did a cam and I said, yeah, but with this motor planning or when I started doing more complex tasks, they really were slower than yesterday. Something's going on. Like, does that intuition that, but your assessment is different because you're working so long and doing different kinds of tasks with them than I did as an NP or even as a nurse. So I think that's a really key that, um, PTs be involved in that delirium assessment and intervention. And that's the part I think we're missing in a lot of ICUs. So it's fun to hear your experiences with that. Um, if you could wave a magical wand and <laughs> um, and have more patients, even during some of the higher acuity phases, mobilized, how would you approach that? If you could wave a magical wand and address some of these barriers, how would you, do you think you could Improve even more in early mobility, or get more patients doing more progressive mobility.
1: I definitely think we could. Um, I think even though um, we are aggressive when it comes to mobility, and we do coordinate, um, sometimes we we're still limited by staff constraints and um, just overall timing. And if we have multiple large burns on our unit at the same time, they take a lot of resources. So it can be, because even though mobility is a priority, the um, preventing the burn scar contractures is our number one priority. So sometimes we have to devote more time to that than we necessarily kind of include in the mobility progression. So um, I definitely think having more staff, more time, (laughs) would um, definitely help us improve kind of access to some of the patients um, as much as we would like to.
0: I love it. No, that's a great, yeah, that's a great answer. I think um, some of the most progressive teams I've interacted with are those that are looking for room for improvement. Ironically, some of the teams that have the most dated protocols or practices are those that say we're doing the best we can. This is as good as it gets, or we've always done it this way, or this is the way it's done. Mm -hmm. So, I think just that mentality of saying there could be more done. Um, and here are the barriers, is a sign of a team and a clinician that is always striving to practice evidence-based medicine. And I'm sure that's why your team is so progressive. It's because we have you have great leaders like you. And what did you find in your publication? What was your conclusion after scouring years of records?
1: So um our main conclusion was that it that we're more limited than general IC studies that early mobility with burn patients is feasible and it's safe and it can be done which isn't again not something that had been really looked at for specifically to find like vented burn patients um, and that uh, again again we were just wanting to look at kind of how we were utilizing our protocol so we were utilizing them we were facing barriers but we were just more limited so I think and we needed to look at more data so I think we're we've definitely changed our our um, Line protocols. So we're looking at how that has affected our mobility outcomes now and um, the patients we've been able to progress. So, um, and I can tell you it's led to a lot more active treatment with our patients, um, with LINES. So, um, definitely excited to hopefully come out with that in the next, um, in the next year. Um, but yeah, I definitely, I think, Any performance improvement project that a team can do, just looking back, retrospectively reviewing your own work and your own charts is the best way to start.
0: That is such a powerful example. And the fact that you use this not just for publication, but for action, that Mm -hmm. you then change practices. And then you're going to reevaluate. That is so powerful. And as a physical therapist, you are so needed in the ICU and you are saving lives. And thank you for your incredible example. And as you come out with more um, findings within the burn realm, please keep us posted. We'll have you back on.
1: Okay, perfect. Thank you. Thank you.